0: I'm Kate Daniels. This summer, this July 28th, marks the 150th anniversary of the adoption of the 14th Amendment of our Constitution, which defined American citizenship. 150 years, and we continue to have the struggles and challenges around this subject of citizenship. We have an ideal person, Professor Martha S. Jones, with us this morning. Martha Jones is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor at Johns Hopkins University. She was formerly a founding director of the Michigan Law School Program in Race, Law, and History. She is an author and joins us this morning with her new book, directly related to the 14th Amendment, Birthright Citizens, and she is with us now. Professor Martha Jones, good morning and thank you so greatly for being with us this morning.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: You know, with this new work that you have in your new book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, while it's history and you are a legal historian, this strikes me as being history that's not something we read about just in books. History is something alive and relevant, even though it's written about 150 years ago in the situations and prior to that. It's history, it's life that we see uh, really lived out day to day today.
1: You're right. And one of the things I learned in writing Birthright Citizens is that citizenship has always been um, a debate It has always been a contested status, if you will, in the United States. It was true 150 years ago, 200 years ago for African Americans, and here we are in 2018. And you're right that this history um, sheds a new kind of light on the debates we are engaged in today around who is a citizenship, who belongs to the nation.
0: And very clearly, we know that what went on 200 plus years ago and and what happened with the Constitution and thereafter and all the struggles, all of that, um, I think we need to appreciate that it's not something that's just a given that it seems to, while we may not want to be struggling, but in order to preserve the rights there, there is a constant uh, vigilance, I guess, and the need for mm. for kind of a, a fight for it.
1: Yeah, and that turns out to be, in a sense, the very origins of citizenship in the United States. Um, as I began to look at the ways in which free African Americans, so these are people, many of them former slaves in the era after the U.S. Constitution, um, here they are in the United States, um, making families, building vocations, building communities, churches, political organizations, but they have a very um, uncertain connection to the Constitution, an uncertain connection um, to the nation, and their long struggles over many decades before the Civil War is really what pushes the nation for the first time by 1868, 150 years ago, to finally define who is a citizen of the United States. And the solution is what we call today birthright citizenship.
0: And that is the actual term. That is not just the the title of the book. This is a a living term that is used to define people.
1: Yes, Yes. and um, it is intended to connote that um, any person... Uh, born on the soil of the United States is, by virtue of birth, a citizen of the United States. And we can contrast it to other citizenship schemes in which, for example, um, people are deemed citizens by virtue of blood. Um, You're the child of a citizen, so you become a citizen. But in the United States in 1868, with the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, Congress um, elect to adopt birthright citizenship precisely so that the 4.5 million African Americans in the country will now, in one grand gesture, um, also become citizens.
0: And there's a, a part of it, of course, We, I think many of us, I would hope that all of us would think that, well, that's logical. Look what was given up what was done to uh, to accomplish this? These people were born here, and then to to think that they could be deported to deported. Period. Yes, right? yes,
1: and that's one of the um, the threats that hangs over the head of former slaves for many decades before the Fourteenth Amendment um, colonization, which is a term we don't really use much today, um, but these were organizations, colonization societies were organizations that were attempting to encourage um, former slaves to leave the country, to self-deport in essence. Um, Former slaves also were confronted by what we call black laws, regulations um, of nearly every facet of their lives be it their religious lives, be it their family lives, be it their work lives, their political lives. And these um, two sorts of pressures um, were, in essence, working together to encourage people to self-deport. These were um, efforts promoted by people who thought the United States could only be, quote-unquote, a white man's country, that there was no future for an interracial democracy, even as slavery might come to an end. Now, African Americans respond to that, and they do so by seizing on this notion of birthright citizenship and claiming, yes, by virtue of their labor, but by virtue of their birth in the United States, they claim to be citizens. And,
0: and it was a long struggle. And there... There were some key figures who really spearheaded this, so that they went to the courts. They they did all the research. This it it took literally blood, sweat, and tears to do it.
1: It did, and one of my um, favorite discoveries um, in this work was the Legal Rights Association. Um, I would say, you know, a modest. Precursor in the early 19th century to the NAACP, Legal Defense Fund, that we know today and we associate with Thurgood Marshall. So these are African American activists in Baltimore, Maryland. It's the 1820s, and they are concerned that they are being pressured, heavily pressured, to leave the United States. They begin to do some research, they consult with some pretty highly placed legal minds of the period beginning to try and piece together um, an argument that would support their um, continued residence and their continued lives in the united states now some of them give up and that's the case with a man named hezekiah grice who by 1831 really despairs of his future in the united states and grice will leave under these pressures and relocate uh, to Haiti, the first black led republic in the Americas. And he will become prosperous and successful, a director of public works in uh, Haiti's uh, main city. So Grice leaves, but his compatriots in the Legal Rights Association, you're right, stay. They remain in Baltimore, um, and they and their children in the next generation will continue um, to stay put and to build piece by piece the case that they are citizens.
0: It it's just uh, for me mind boggling to think of what it it did take that this document, the Constitution, wasn't sufficient; that there still needed to be all the struggle, and and justifiably so because they they earned it. It it just seemed logical.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, they study the Constitution of 1787, um, and what they discover is that um, that document is pretty much silent about who is a citizen. Um, and who might be a citizen of the united states it doesn't define citizenship it has one little clue um, one that probably is familiar to most folks which is that um, the president must be a natural born citizen of the united states so for example they say well hey if the president is a natural born citizen there must be such a thing as a natural born citizen of the united states and why aren't we also natural born citizens we're born here. We're free people. As you say, we labor, we contribute to the prosperity of the nation. Um, if the men who sit as president are natural-born citizens, why aren't we? They notice that there is no color bar in the U.S. Constitution. They, Many of them claim the Constitution is colorblind as a text and makes no distinction between black citizens and white citizens of the United States. So you can see in this the way in which they are drawing on their own lives, and at the same time, they are becoming um, really astute um, uh, readers of the Constitution, um, of court decisions, interpreters of the law, even as they are barred from formally sitting for the bar, as lawyers, um, they became, become very sophisticated about this um, because the stakes are high, um, because they really are committed to remaining in the United States, in their communities, and in order to do so, they need uh, something that will safeguard their claim to residence in the U.S.
0: And uh, so much of this. Uh is played out, uh, is lived in Baltimore. Baltimore is really key and you're living in this area now too.
1: I am yes. Um I, was, um, I came to Baltimore um, initially as a researcher um, because I knew a few things about this city. Um, one was that it had the largest community of free African Americans in the United States before the Civil War. So I knew here if there were going to be questions, there were going to be issues, if there were going to be activism, I would likely find it here in Baltimore where there were so many free people of color. Um, Baltimore was also the third largest city in the United States before the Civil War. And some of the era's um, most influential legal minds uh, made their homes here. Uh, Roger Taney, who was the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, for example, made his home in Baltimore. William Wirt, who was the, um, probably the most important of the U.S. Attorneys General. Um, also made his home in Baltimore. And so I wanted to see what it was like when, um, if you will, everyday African-American activists like Hezekiah Grice um, confronted figures like Roger Tawney and William Wirt in Baltimore, in their hometown. And what we discover um, when we look at those confrontations are the ways in which The distance between the Supreme Court and what's happening on the streets of Baltimore is not as far away as we might have initially thought, Um, that folks sitting on the high bench or occupying the Office of Attorney General know well what free African Americans are struggling with in a day-to-day way, and it helps us, I think, read their formal uh, rulings um, with a new light, um, understanding that they were responding to the kinds of insistences that were coming from free African Americans.
0: And this struggle of the debates and the challenges, this went on really for decades, didn't it?
1: It it did. It it begins in the 1820s um, in part as a response to um, the colonization movement that I mentioned, um, as uh, societies organize to try and encourage free people of color to leave, um, the debate begins. Um, but then, in places you might not expect, um, in 1820 and 21, um, Missouri is becoming um, a state. And uh, Congress Uh, Reviews the uh, proposed constitution for the state of Missouri um, in this period and uh, discerns that Missouri proposes to bar free people of color from the state blanketly. They say no black people permitted in Missouri. And Congress really debates this um, and says, wait a minute, the constitution guarantees. to each citizen the privileges and immunities of citizenship. That is to say a kind of equality between the citizens of the various states. Now, if free people of color are citizens, you can't bar them like that. You have to treat them, if they come from Maryland, just as if they had come from Missouri. That's what the privileges and immunities of citizenship requires. And so we see Congress, um, as early as 1820, responding to the claims made by free african-americans and itself embroiled in a debate that i can tell you they don't resolve um, they really um, go to great lengths to examine the question in the end they sort of punt and say well we're going to let missouri figure it out for herself as a state and so lawmakers very earlier involved in this question and this was important to me because I was familiar, as I think some of your listeners will be, with a notorious uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision, Dred Scott versus Sanford, um, which was decided in 1857 by the Supreme Court and said that no black person could be a citizen of the United States. Well, it turns out, by 1857, um, this is a roiling debate um, that even the Supreme Court can't settle, Um, because it is happening in so many quarters, um, and it has so many um, proponents on both sides. Um, The Supreme Court tries to settle it, um, but as you learn in Birthright Citizens, um, Congress and the states will have the last word um, when the 14th Amendment is ratified in 1868.
0: Yes, in 1868. So we see the decades of the real directed struggles and challenges that went on. And so here we are 150 years later. Exactly. This is really the celebration of that accomplishment.
1: It really is. And um, oftentimes we tell the story of the 14th Amendment as an achievement of Congress. And it was. But I hope that readers of birthright citizens will come to appreciate the degree to which particularly birthright citizenship was the product of these many decades of african-american activism black people discover this idea they nurture it and they in essence serve it up to congress when the time is right as a solution To the question of who African Americans will be inside the nation going forward after emancipation and after the Civil War. Um, So it's a new chapter in a very important story and I think it's an important story to recover today because um, there are moments in which we find ourselves debating birthright citizenship and asking why and was it a good idea and Was it uh, too expansive? Um, Well, we have to go back to this history to recognize that the framers of the 14th Amendment were deliberate. Um, They understood the problem that was in front of them. They were well-equipped with sophisticated arguments that had been developed by African Americans over the decades. And birthright citizenship was no Luke, no accident, no overreach, um, it was a way to set, to reset the terms of citizenship in a way that that status would be immune from racism, the racism that Congress was concerned might follow on the heels of slavery's abolition.
0: And this is what is so interesting that the uh, your book, Birthright Citizen, is out now at a time when we really can see the, the total relevance and how it's this living, living history. It's so much a part of us right now. You could not have consciously known that as you were <laughs> writing, but it, it's, it's as though you were somehow otherwise directed that this had to come out.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. Um I'm not uh, I'm not unique in that um as historians we begin projects uh in my case 10 years ago um beginning to work on this book asking the kinds of questions I was um working in the archives um to recover um the stories that uh, animate birthright citizens really not knowing where we would be in uh 2018. And um, so yes, um, it has been uh, a period during which um, I, who I am really a specialist of African American history, um, it's been important for me to also expand my own understanding to the history of immigration, um, to, for example, the story of uh, Chinese exclusion acts in the um, latter part of the 19th century, and then, of course, to policy, and politics of 2018 to recognize the way in which birthright citizenship, that provision in the 14th Amendment, still arbitrates belonging to an important degree in our own time. And I guess I would say it's not adequate, right? The remedy of the 19th century, which settled an enormous question, right, an enormous question, um, is not up to the task that we face today. Um, It is doing, I think, the unintended work of uh, separating families, which was never the intention of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was intended to, by way of citizenship, support, sustain, undergird the reconstitution of the African-American family after slavery, after civil war, after emancipation. And so now we see that precisely same instrument um, functioning to um, separate mixed status families in the United States, for example, right? children who are birthright citizens, but parents who are not and are subject to detention or to deportation. And so um, we're also seeing the limits right? of a scheme that 150 years ago um, was so powerful and was uh, so much a gesture of justice, today doesn't quite have the ability to um, offer up the kind of justice that we, I think, recognize is required in our own time.
0: What I feel that we have with birthright citizenship, birthright citizens, at this book, is being able to to get the stories because stories are so powerful Mm -hmm. and we have that encouragement. We see what's gone on. I think it helps us to perhaps feel uh, much more energized as to what we need to do. We can, there's no room for complacency ever.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think um, the other thing I would say about these stories is that um, the folks I write about live through some very dire and dark moments. There's no question, right? They live through moments of tremendous despair. And as I mentioned in the case of Hezekiah Grice, he leaves the United States. Mm -hmm. Now he comes back. He does come back during the Civil War when he realizes now he can be a citizen. And he gets a passport um, as evidence that though it is 30-plus years later, he now can be a citizen of the United States. But people live through very despairing times. Um, They survive tremendous degradation, um, and that is not an advertisement for subjecting people in the 21st century to similar indignities and degradations. But it is to say that there is in their stories a sense of justice-secured, Um, in a long game, right, in a long game around citizenship um, and um, in a kind of persistence, um, a patience, an insistence, um, continuing, right, to make the claim even when it falls on um, uh, the ears that cannot hear it, um, continuing to make that claim. That's part of the lesson for me of this story is that even when, The circumstances are despairing. um, There's work to do. Um, And that is what former slaves did before the Civil War. And it is my perception, of course, that this is what um, immigrants in our country are engaged in today, is that long struggle.
0: Yes, and that's why I think each of us really needs to reach out and find our our own copy of Birthright (laughs) Citizens because this is freshly out in print. It uh, is certainly available at all of our favorite book sources, correct, Professor Jones? It is, yes. Yes, (laughs) Yes. and and it's important. uh, As we've been discussing for the last little bit here, the reason that we need to is because this really in, uh, reinforces how it's a, a a living document, and it is something that we need to put our energies behind. And, and I think, again, this is the encouragement that we are needing if we feel at all like we're kind of floundering.
1: I think that's right. And so I hope that readers take do take some inspiration from the struggles that birthright citizens. Do. Um, Chronicles, um, and see in it um, a reason to continue the struggle over citizenship um, right into our own time. That is as American as anything else.
0: Yes. And I think that we will see. Well, your your work originally y- you began as as a lawyer, and you were really defending the rights uh, of women and those uh, really in uh, kind of marginalized. And so we see that all of this is pulled together. We uh, we all pull together and and need to hold on for these rights.
1: Yeah. It is. um, I really believe it's as American as anything. Um, And uh, I was very influenced by the work of uh, political theorist Bonnie Honig, who says, you know, there's nothing more um, endemic to a democracy than a permanent struggle over who is in, right, and who's coming in and who can get in. Um, And um, that is a story we can tell through the lives of former slaves, We can tell that through the lives of European immigrants in earlier generations, um, Chinese immigrants in the 19th century, and immigrants in our midst today. And I do think that is as core um, a story about what is democracy as any kind of story we might tell.
0: And again, I think we don't have to look too far to see that this is what keeps going on and replaying sometimes more obviously than perhaps other times. But I, I, I appreciate that phrase a permanent struggle, uh, ever being vigilant as to mm-hmm. what's going on, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think so. And um, and I think that um, it is, I think for African Americans a moment to um, recognize that there are some core, Um, dimensions of citizenship that um, we might have come to take for granted. right? The right to residence, the right to remain in the soil, to come, to go, to leave and return. Um, And we see that brought into relief in birthright citizens before the 14th Amendment. And we're seeing that today as we're watching immigrants be detained, excluded, deported, um, separated from loved ones. Um, This was the um, the, the plight of former slaves before the 14th Amendment.
0: Another area, besides getting our own copy of Birthright mm-hmm. Citizens, is your website. Let's mention that because there again is a wealth of information.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, it's s jones.com. It's my name.com. And there, um, readers um, certainly can find a link to the book, um, but also some of the commentary um, that I have written that tries to make um, deliberately the connections between this past and the issues that we are confronting today. So I hope that will be um, of interest to some readers who really do want to continue to think about the contemporary implications of this past.
0: You are just so amazing, and I am so grateful for for your passion and, and your knowledge and your deep desire then to share it, spending time with us this morning. And I thank you greatly for that. And once again, want to underscore birthright citizens. It's something that we all need to embrace and realize its utter value in our life.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure.